Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this jovial little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Davey Ripner. Now, if you know Davey like I know Davey, you'll know him as that bearded, friendly, great guy at the community hall on Saturdays selling some of his leatherworks. Well, today we're going to get to hear about how he got involved in being a leathersmith, as well as a heck of a lot more, such as we're going to get to hear about his 25-year involvement working for the solar industry. We'll get to hear about him building and living in a treehouse in Northern California with his wife and small child. And also, we're going to get to hear Davey tell us about dodging the Vietnam War draft and what happened with his life because of it. All right, that's it for the intro. We'll see you on the other side of the music. Here is my interview with Davey Ribner. Davey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Right on. How are you doing today? Oh, feeling good. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. How was your day? It was a warm one. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's a hot one today for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Davey, let's uh, get into the first traditional question that we always do on this podcast, and that is, what brought you to Pender Island? I had been shopping for a, a new place to live for five or six years, seven years, and usually you went to Salt Spring Island, which is common for people looking for Gulf Islands, uh, places to settle, and it looked like the perfect home, and uh, every year I came, it seemed a little busier. Finally, when my wife and I were ready to make the move, we arrived on Salt Spring during the Saturday market, which is the big social occasion during the summer every, every week. And it was packed with probably lots of Americans. And uh, she was at one end of the market, and I was at the other, and I had arranged to meet her at noon. So um, five minutes before noon, I set out to get to reach her at the other meeting place that we decided upon. And I'd, I'd forgotten how long it took me, but by the time that I finally did reach her, I decided I didn't want to live on Salt Spring Island. No offense to Salt Spring Island uh, denizens, because I have dear friends who live there, and they don't seem to mind the crowds. But uh, Pender uh, was uh, one of uh, a few other choices, and we kept coming back here. And uh, one day we found a place that we just couldn't couldn't resist, and we moved uh, in 2008 here. We were living in Northern California, rurally, and my wife was a uh, instructor at Humboldt State University, and I worked in the solar industry at that time in uh, renewable energy. And it was easy to pick up and leave. I took my job with me for a couple of years and worked remotely. After two years, I uh, had the offer to move to Sacramento or uh, quit, and quitting seemed like the right thing to do. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. You know, I've run into a few people on the island over the years who have moved 
from Northern California or actually have a second home even living in Northern California and moving to the Gulf Islands? What was it that drew you to uh, the Gulf Islands? Well, the tranquility. Uh, it's a beautiful place. It's green all year. I, I just like the feel of the of the land. And uh, the people I met were all wonderful and welcoming. And a lot of things that are hard to describe, but I'm comfortable living here with, with those things that make the place different. Okay. Well, what was your first interaction with the Gulf Islands? We took um, trips. Uh, in, in 2008, we decided that we were going to leave Northern California and move here. We just didn't know where we wanted to live. So we started in Victoria and we took uh, day trips to the islands and up further up north and tried many places, tried them on for size. And coming here, I uh, it just felt different than uh, all the other places that I'd lived. After two or three visits and home shopping, we uh, got a call advising us to come over right away and to bring our checkbook <laughs> because uh, a sensitive broker here got to know what we liked and what we had come from and and us got to know our personalities and he was right he picked out the right place and uh, we uh, bid on it right away and bought it within a, uh, a day wow Okay, so it was perfect. Mm -hmm. It's been so. It's been uh, ten years, I guess, so far. And it's uh, going to be ten years. Yeah, in Christmas it would be ten years here. And so, how how would you say that your experience has been living on Pender for the last ten years? Do you think that it met your expectations, or different, or how, how have things been the last ten well, years? I like it better uh, every year, and time is passing rapidly. Yes, it certainly more than met my expectations. Okay. Well, I think a number of people might recognize you as somebody who's at the market selling leather goods. And so I definitely wanted to get into that because you actually directed me towards a website that you have and uh, showed me a history that you have of uh, being a leathersmith. And uh, I just wanted to talk about that to uh, dig into that little part of your history, which is actually a big part of your history. But you make custom-made sandals and various other leather items. And uh, I just wanted to hear when you got into that in your life and a little bit about that and what you can tell us about that. I was a craftsman early on uh, and dabbled in many uh, materials and started doing uh, leather work when I was 13. I had a bad toe that stuck up and didn't allow me to wear the Buster Brown tight laced leather shoes that mothers in the uh, 40s and the 50s insisted their kids wore. So I made a pair of moccasins, uh, a um, American Plains Indian traditional design, hand sewed them. It was straightforward and I wore them till I wore them out. And uh, from that time on, I started making, continue to make footwear. I made my first pair of sandals when I was 18. They were as stiff as a board. I never was able to wear them. And then a few years passed, I went to, I went to college and uh, went, eventually ended up on the West Coast, in Los Angeles, um, trying to stay out of the draft. Vietnam was, uh, it was high dudgeon in Vietnam and people uh, my age were being uh, taken away. And even if I wanted to stay on university, I couldn't have done it anymore. So I left. I uh, moved to Vancouver, but on the way, I um, stopped in Sausalito, which is just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And there I was offered a job by the manager 
of a sandal shop on Bridgeway, looking with a view out toward um, San Francisco across the bay. It was quite wonderful. His uh, head sandal maker was taking off for a, a trip forever on his BMW with his girlfriend on the back. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that sometime. But in the meantime, I took over for him and I made sandals until um, I got word that I suppose it was the FBI was looking for me and knew that I was in the Bay Area. So in short order, my girlfriend and I left and moved to Vancouver. There were some adventures and misadventures along the way, but we made it. And uh, I stayed there for, I think, until 1960, probably 1970, and then moved to Victoria and lived there a couple of years. And then uh, went back to the States and lived rurally for uh, homesteaded for the rest of the time until 2008 when I returned. All right. So that entire time you've been working with leather? No, I had a career in the midst of it because, do, shall I tell my uh, my story about Garberville? Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, Garberville's a little one-horse town north of San Francisco, 200 miles. And ranching and ranching was big until uh, there were three major industries that went um, went away because uh, the uh, raw materials were exhausted, and that's uh, forestry and salmon fishing and uh, oak bark, actually, for a time. It's used for tanning leather, oddly. And um, it was an opportunity to purchase a large parcel of land, 82 acres, was huge for a city boy. And uh, another couple and I moved onto the land, leather workers as well. So we did that for a while, raised our kids, and my sandal shop in town, I, I used up all the likely um, customers because it was that kind of a town, uh, hipnecks and rednecks and hippies. And uh, then I got a job working in solar energy, renewable energy, which I did for the next 25 plus years. And it wasn't until I came back to uh, Pender that I started making uh, sandals again. I do consider myself a career sandal maker. It was just, it was my first career. Okay. All right. Well, many different uh, threads to go with here. And I'm actually just going to go with the uh, solar energy line here and uh, 25 years of working in that industry. What was your first introduction to that? And what were you doing with that um, with that career? Well, my wife and I built a cabin on, we lived in a tree house for the first two years and finally got, got enough money together to build a small, I think it was 16 by 20 cabin. And it was on land that didn't have uh, any facilities, no electricity, or um, we had to provide for for water and um, everything. So at that time, there really wasn't much in the way of um, means of producing electricity. And the people who had their small holdings, uh, land holdings, would charge um, a battery. They'd drive to town. It was 45 minutes to Garberville, which is... And when you're once you're there, either you're <laughs> you're not very there. You're a long way from every place else. Um, they take their batteries in and charge them, and uh, bring them back and run their tape players and radios for a week, and then they'd have to go and charge their batteries again. And um, my my friend owned a small uh, shop that sold photovoltaic modules, 
and they were a big hit uh, because people could run their small appliances, listen to music, Grateful Dead generally. It was that generation. And uh, the business grew and grew and grew, and I went along with it. Finally, it, it became too corporate for me, so that was when I bailed. That was in 2010, when I was living on the island. So that was until 2010. So sorry, it got too corporate. And like, how, how did things evolve during those 25 years to get to the point where it became too corporate of an entity? Well, it was a, it was a great technological feat to power people's uh, homes and boats remotely to give them a communication and small tools. So it was bound to happen and photovoltaics got cheaper and cheaper and Pretty soon, the big companies started looking at the mom and pops that were the backbone of rural electrification. And uh, they started spending a lot of money and buying up these little uh, companies. So my company, which was a mom and pop, it just had... When I went to work, there was the owner, his girlfriend, her brother, and uh, a shipper. We started shipping things. So there were just uh, four or five of us at the beginning. And ultimately, we got bought by Shot Power, which is as well-known internationally as Corning Glass. So it was a very big company. And most of us who were part of that group that had come up from just rural electrification to bigger and bigger systems didn't really resonate with corporatocracy and had our own values, which were impractical probably in the, the bigger picture but didn't get along very well with um, the kind of uh, corporate uh, businesses that we were required to become. So the company was sold and bought back by the owner a year later and sold again and repurchased. And that happened four times. Wow. And that's that's when I left. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I'd had enough of it. But it was renewable energy, so it was a... A noble uh, pursuit. It felt good to be to be selling, and I was involved in education and trade shows, that sort of thing. So I I traveled and met lots of people in the on that circuit. And now it's big business all over the world. Yeah, for sure. Because I guess backing up twenty five years from twenty ten, we're talking about the mid eighties that you were involved in that. And right. I guess that was pretty fringe back in the mid eighties. Oh, it definitely was. Well, I'll tell you a little story about. Uh, <laughs> Our experiences um, at the beginning of that uh, interest in solar power. The people in uh, at Kyocera in Japan saw a um, a blip on their world map. Big sales going to Garberville. Kyocera was the one of the biggest. Arco and Kyocera, the biggest um, initial manufacturers of of solar panels. They um, sent a couple of suits, a couple of Japanese people dressed for. Tokyo and three-piece suits to Arcata, which is a college town north of the uh, area that I lived, about 80 miles. And my uh, friend, uh, David Katz, was the owner, went to pick them up at the airport and brought them back and set them up in his rural home. And for the next two days, he took them around to see how photovoltaics were being used in the hills, uh, Humboldt Hills. So they went around and met all these odd people who were living independently, making their own power and uh, making babies and living their lives in the hills. 
When it was over, he took them back to the Arcata airport and put them on the plane. And the last thing they said to him was, um, can you tell us one thing? We don't understand. Why would anybody want to live like that? Wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was their their way of uh, seeing <laughs> rural living. Didn't resonate with their no. their cultural experience, no. right? Yeah, interesting. You you said uh, as well earlier too that you you were living in a treehouse to start off with. Is that correct? Yeah, we um, we looked at the land together, my wife and I, and our land partners. One beautiful New Year's day, a bright and t-shirt weather day in Southern Humboldt, and uh, decided then and there to buy it. And um, Elizabeth was living here. She was still living in Vancouver. We went over and looked at a hillside. There was a big oak tree. She said, will you build a house here? And I'll, I'll bring our son back down with me when you're ready. So I built a little house uh, off the ground on an oak tree on a beautiful uh, hillside. And uh, we lived there for two years, and uh, we had beautiful weather, and it never snowed uh, until the day that we moved into the cabin and uh, the roof collapsed on the roof house. What? Uh, uh, tree house that day. Wow. So wait, the day you were moving out of your tree house, the roof collapsed? Yeah. What? Right. The day after we moved into the cabin. Yeah. Holy smokes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's pretty fortunate timing, timing obviously. Yeah. Well, how big was this tree house? It was three sheets of plywood. Uh, so that's 12 by eight. And it had a uh, had walls made out of cloth, cotton, and screening around the top. Daniel, our son's, our four year old son's bedroom, hung underneath ours on a sheet of plywood. And he too was had uh, mosquito cloth and uh, cotton cloth all around. And then it was an enclosed area, visqueen as they call it, four and six mil plastic sheeting around. So it was slightly insulated, air insulation, and that was wrapped around the kitchen area, which everything was, of course, outdoors and built onto trees. We did fine there. It was warm enough. We had a wood stove and a big uh, basin to take baths in. And I think it was 100 feet of three-quarter inch black plastic polyester pipe or hose in a coil on top of a, a little shower stall so we could get our hot showers outside. So what gave you the idea to build a treehouse? Did you have a building background? Elizabeth told me to do it. Oh, really? Okay. But she specifically said build a treehouse. Well, there was a tree and she thought it would be a good idea. So yeah, I guess it was her idea. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's cool. I don't know very many people, or at least maybe I think I don't know too many people who lived in treehouses, but cool. Right on. All it right. was like camping. Well, for two, two years. Half, two yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Something else that uh, you touched on earlier was you talked about dodging the draft when you were younger. And actually, this is the first conversation you and I have ever had, which uh, was at the market. And we got into this for quite a while because I was super curious to hear about it. And uh, we'll just uh, ask you, tell the folks listening a little bit about that as well, too. But uh, you were enlisted to in the Vietnam uh, War. Every 18-year-old when, um, when I was a kid had that to look forward to. And I was born in 1943. So uh, when I turned 18, I uh, had to go down to my local draft board and tell them that uh, that I was still in school uh, and they had my information. So they tracked me the, that for the next five years that I managed to stay out of the uh, draft. And I went to, as I say, I moved to the West Coast and uh, went to college and stayed. I probably would never have stayed in in university so long 
but for my fear of going to going off to war. And I was opposed to it, certainly um, on humanitarian reasons. And I also didn't want to get killed. And I also didn't want to go camping in the in the mud and live the life that, that a soldier has to live, soldier under fire. So I did manage to stay away, stay out of the draft. But uh, finally, they just uh, decided that they, uh, they needed more of uh, people that they'd allowed to stay out for that time. And, and I was drafted, conscripted. And that's when I left. Okay. All right. Well, can you describe that uh, to the listeners a little bit? Because I'm I'm super curious about how that must have felt emotionally to uh, have to basically leave your home country for, you know, the reason to avoid going off to war, basically. And uh, what, what was the feeling that you had at that time? And, uh, you know, what, what were you thinking about uh, how your future was looking and everything? I had a pretty solid... Uh let's say grounding in uh, in ethics and morality and it, it just didn't uh, did not compute to go away to war and uh, you remember Arlo Guthrie's story about having to go down to the draft board and tell him that he was arrested for littering well i tried everything but that and none of those uh, time worn methods got me out of the draft but i knew uh, i knew early on that i i didn't want to uh, i was not a patriot ever and i knew there was something wrong with the the sort of fealty that was expected from all young americans and drummed into them so it wasn't hard to uh, wasn't hard to leave what america what the usa was becoming then uh, richard nixon was to be a featured speaker at the university that i was attending then in San Fernando Valley, uh, University of California State School, I think that was the uh, the clincher. It was that it was easier to leave, leave then. It had gotten to that point, and and I had been in peace marches in Los Angeles, and I had a training stint in the Peace Corps, and I was ejected because of my my activities during the training. So I was uh, I was right for bailing for leaving the US. So I didn't mind that part. I felt like I was escaping, but it was hard to leave um, the parts of the culture that were that made it home, my friends and uh my mother died around that time, pretty young. Uh I was 23, she was only 43, and I didn't have uh, any strong family ties other than her. So it was easier maybe for me than it might have been for others. But I did feel very much cast adrift. I was welcomed, though, in Canada. I never met a Canadian that didn't congratulate me for what I had done, for taking a stand. Then I found out years later that my induction papers had been moved back to the uh, southeast uh, of the U.S. because I had spent some years there as a child. And my Alabama draft board was uh, broken into by Father David Berrigan and another lay priest. And you can read the history about it. They dumped blood on draft files and burned many of them. Wow. So I don't know if mine, what happened to mine exactly, but the U.S. never admitted to that. The government never admitted that that had happened. And... uh, 
they they may not have been looking for me after a certain point. They were at the beginning, but they what I heard later was that fifteen percent of draft dodgers or people who left resisted or were uh, pursued. So I might have been part of that fifteen percent. I never I never did find out. Okay. Wow. You know, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about little details about like Richard Nixon speaking at uh, the university you're going to. And, and that was real trigger point. You said it was kind of the last straw, one of the last straws for you. Yeah, I think a lot of people and young people, too, particularly in college, college age people, people around universities saw the regime and Richard Nixon in, in a way similar to the way they see Trump. He was uh, just a petty tyrant, and the war was um, wrong in so many ways, just another part of American imperialism. So it was an escape from that. It was, it didn't feel like the right place for me. So in that, it made it easy to cross the border and to live in Canada. And I did like the culture. I preferred the culture here better, even than the the great uh, San Francisco and and uh, Sausalito and Mill Valley, that culture in the uh, mid-60s was a really exciting place to be in and the right time for it. The great San Francisco bands, the Jefferson Airplane, and of course, the Grateful Dead. I, I was able to watch them in uh, Golden Gate Park and little intimate uh, settings and Big Brother and the Holding Company, Janis Joplin. That was all happening. It was a rich cultural time. So I liked living there. I was a little sorry to leave and have to go to Canada for that. But uh, altogether, it was a better place. I, I opened a sandal shop early on in uh, on 4th Avenue in Vancouver, in Kitsilano, and it was successful. And traveled in the winters and came back and and lived in, uh, in Vancouver, uh, North Vancouver also, and in Victoria in the, in the sandal season, which is... When people start getting hot feet, that's when I, I go to work. <laughs> For sure. Definitely. Well, so when you came out to Canada, uh, it, is that when you met your future wife? No, we didn't meet until 74, 75. Okay. Yeah, I, had, I had a whole other life in between there. <laughs> whole other life. Okay. Well, maybe we can touch on that a little bit because to me, you know, my connection with that time period is just based on images I see through movies and documentaries, but... For somebody who was living in San Francisco, going out to Golden Gate Park, watching the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin playing and being a part of that culture, can you describe a little bit more of uh, what that felt like to be part of that scene? Was the city super... Was it hippie neck? Uh, because you used the word hippie neck earlier and you asked me if I knew what that was. Hip neck. And I, hip neck. Okay, right, right. <laughs> you used the term hip neck. And it's a combination, as you told me, between hippies and rednecks. Right, but and the what, rednecks are not in the city. That's, that's no, so was San Francisco super hippified or? No, I think, well, let's put it this way. You could hitchhike any place in the Bay Area and there was always somebody that was going to pick you up. Country Joe and the Fish has a song about that, getting a ride, hitchhiking. And I don't see a lot of recognition in your eyes when I mention these icons. <laughs> <laughs> that band has somehow slipped from, well, we're not, both, made, not made the radar. We're both showing our age, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there were always um, like-minded um, people, uh, not most of them probably teens and early 20s. That's most of the people who were 
dressed wildly and were uh, anti-establishment. And there were even squatters in San Francisco downtown buildings at that time. Everything just seemed easy. It seemed easy to, to live, uh, to earn a living and to meet people. And there weren't too many bad things happening in that city at that time. I mean, of course it got worse and the Haight-Ashbury became a, a treacherous place. But when I lived there, it was like all the music. <laughs> really? Oh, just listen to some of the uh, the old music in, from that era. What do you mean it got treacherous though? Well, it got to be a place, a magnet for um, young people from the all over the U.S. and all over um, the world too, mostly Europe too. And more and more people came into Haight-Ashbury and filled the streets up and drugs became a focus. Not that they weren't a, a highlight of those years in uh, 66 and 67, uh, but I was gone by the time it got ugly on the streets. Then I did go back and I lived in Berkeley um, years later and in Sausalito too. So I, I did have a taste of that, of the culture. And it was always rich. It was just not as pleasant downtown. Okay, fair enough. All right, so I guess, well, fast forward to the uh, the Vancouver days. So you're you're living in Vancouver. You're hiding out from from the authorities. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that was still on your mind, though, was, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably until um, maybe 70, I felt at ease there and... Uh, wasn't looking over my shoulder anymore. And then I didn't hear about... They, there were a couple of occasions, at least one that I know of, where where a young man was taken across the border from the Canadian side to the U.S. side, a draft dodger. That It was happening, or at least there was the threat of that happening. Yeah. But I think that went away by 1970. And in 1970, I opened up The Good Earth with some friends in uh, North Vancouver, and that was a very successful leather shop. I was there for a couple of years. And I think uh, I'd left everything. Uh, all my fears were over then uh, about uh, worrying about going back to the U.S. And in fact, over the years, I did cross the border, not always with my identification. but <laughs> And then finally, I didn't worry about it anymore. And uh, when uh, Elizabeth and I finally moved to our rural property, I was uh, comfortable there. Oddly, I never ran into very many uh, draft resistors, neither in Vancouver nor... Uh, I'm starting to meet them now. They, uh, maybe they're coming out of the woodwork or there just aren't very many people around that they can talk to that know their experiences as well as I do. Wow. You know, it's interesting because the first time we talked about this, I was trying to put myself in your shoes without the use of hindsight of knowing how history played itself out. And I was just trying to imagine what it must have felt like to have this complete unknown of, okay, well, I'm leaving the United States. I'm going to Canada. I am doing something that's highly illegal at the moment. And you don't really know what the repercussions are going to be like to your life or to your freedom. And at the end of our conversation we had the first time, I said thank you, actually, because I was pretty impressed with the fact that you would take that action and do that. Because in my mind, it's an individual who says no to something that they feel is wrong. 
And if you get a mass amount of, of individuals who say no, then, you know, there, there won't be a group to choose from to do these things that uh, don't really seem very morally right. Yeah. Anyway, I guess I guess I'll just say thank you again, because I think it's a pretty cool move that you did. And uh, mm-hmm. it, I don't think it must have been very easy at the time and the years afterwards. Well, remember, it was an escape that was I was feeling that more strongly than anything else. And I did have a great spirit of adventure back then. And when I first heard about Vancouver, a, a Canadian, in fact, an expat, told me that we could go to Vancouver and there was a big water area and there were people living for free on houseboats out in the bay there. I guess I envisioned a big lake with a lot of houseboats with uh, f- free Canadians living on it. It wasn't quite like that when I came up, but it it was a, a welcoming place, as I say. So it was a place that I was uh, comfortable in and I hadn't been in the U.S. for a long time. So it wasn't as big as an adventure maybe as as you see it. I mean, it was a, it was a good adventure. Also, I was on my way on a bigger adventure. I knew that I was going to be doing a lot of traveling. I had always wanted to see the world, and I was able to do that. Uh, so, as I say, I'd come home in, in, when the weather warmed up, and I had always had a place to stay and friends waiting to see me. And when I had made some money, enough money, I'd take off and travel again. But as I said to you earlier today, I've lost all my wanderlust. I'm content here. And uh, so I've come, maybe I've come full circle. I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I like travel, I like talking about travel. So let's go into some travel stories here. <laughs> what place did you wind up going to that really changed your perspective or changed you? What was the first place you remember that uh, really had a big impact on you? Well, I do remember waking up jet lagged in um, a friend's tiny house in Tokyo and after almost sleepless night and walking out in the street and everything was different. The smells were different, the colors, the cars, the uh, signs, everything was different. It was a a very exciting moment in my life. I think I had been looking for that kind of uh, complete departure from everything familiar. So that was wonderful. I my girlfriend and I hitchhiked for two months through Japan, and they didn't know what hitchhiking was. A term evolved. They called it hitchihaku. <laughs> and I'd have, to, I'd have to explain when somebody stopped to see what these two um, uh, big Canadian and Americans with big packs on their back were standing by the side of the road with their hands out. Uh, and, of course, I didn't speak very much Japanese at all. And nobody spoke English back then. Generally, they would take us to a train station because that's what the Japanese did back then. It was all travel by train. So so that wasn't always successful. But I did get to see a lot of the country and meet a lot of people then, broaden my horizons in Japan. And then I carried on across uh, to the other side, finally coming back, flying back to eastern Canada, landing in eastern Canada, 10-month trip. So Tokyo was the place that really shifted it for you because everything was different. Did you feel comfortable in that setting or was it a sense of feeling out of your element or how, how did you feel? Well, those are pretty high days. Uh, yeah, the world was uh, unfolding like a, like a flower and there were all these new experiences. I was pretty comfortable there, as I recall. I, I did like traveling at the time. Yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't difficult. It was cheap to travel too. It was easy to find places that were seventy five cents a night. Um, Buddhist monasteries you could stay there. The dinners were fifty cents, and it was always 
um, organic and vegetarian food. So it wasn't it wasn't difficult to do at that time. Also, there were very few travelers. I saw occasionally a, a German, a Canadian, or an American, but not often. Of course, I didn't frequent places where high rollers went who did everything by car and jet. But the places that I went, I saw I didn't see very many tourists. We're talking about 1967 and 68. And I did return seven years later for another trip and decided that I'd had enough of Asia. The second time I went back, many things and many places had changed and population was greater in the cities. The gloss had had worn off for me. (laughs) That was just about the end of my passion for traveling. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never traveled without a guidebook in my backpack and mm. been surrounded by travelers, you know, in uh, fairly like uh, frequent times. And uh, it's it's amazing to imagine a situation going into a foreign country and not really running into too many travelers, not really having much to uh, fall back on in mm. terms of information to draw from, right? Well, it does force one to uh, to meet people and to ask people questions, even if you don't have a common language. That was always a good experience. Sure. I've always found people to be super friendly when when people see someone who's clearly not from that area. I see a lot of good come out in people in those situations. I think it's the the vulnerability that they see. They may not put it together, but it's somebody that doesn't represent any kind of a threat and, in fact, has great need for anything that, that they can offer. Yeah. That's actually really well said, for sure, right? Because somebody who is in a confused, vulnerable state is not a threat by any means. No, needs help. Yeah. (laughs) It brings out the parenting in everybody. Sure. (laughs) Definitely. All right. Well, uh, we're going to bring it back to Pender Island a little bit here and lead into the second question, traditional question we we always touch on. But before we get to that, let's let's just talk about you live on the South Island. That is correct? Mm -hmm. All right. So when you found this place and you had to bring a check and because the uh, it was sorry it was a real estate agent right that uh helped you out on that okay so and it wound up being the perfect place for you how was the first year for you living on pender just integrating into the community and how how was that well south pender is slightly different world you cross uh that one-way wooden bridge and uh we we like to think of ourselves as a living on an island (laughs) an island um Separate from the the bigger island, the population was 204 people the last time I checked. It might be a a few more now (laughs) because a lot of properties have sold just in the last two years and some people have moved in. might be 215 people now. That's not very many and it's still considered the agricultural island. And uh, we live uh, on a ridge right above a, uh, a beautiful valley that has some larger parcels, a 15, 30 acre parcels uh, that'll never be broken up. And we're across the valley from the backside of Greenburn Lake, which is the provincial uh, park. And then above us on the ridge is a 30-acre parcel that's owned jointly by the Strata members. There are about 29 properties there. And uh, they're small. They're slivers that go from Castle Road down to Spalding Road. Above us is uh, just a um, a fine uh, walking trail uh, that lets you off if you want to bushwhack on the backside of Mount Norman. So we're cushioned on all sides, plenty of space. And um, when I first 
moved there, I had to uh, take my job with me. Didn't know how I was going to do that. But I went into Shaw. They had a little office then in the uh, Driftwood Center. And it was upstairs. I walked upstairs to my wife, and there was a woman at the desk representing Shaw. And I told her that we had just moved to South Pender. I wanted to know what I could do to get cable. And she answered, uh, you can move to North Pender. (laughs) That's the only unpleasant experience I've had with anybody on the Penders. (laughs) So we did go without cable because they said they would never run cable. There there wasn't enough population to warrant them doing it. Density was too too small. Um, That was in 2008. But I did need to have an internet connection to keep to keep my job working in solar. So I got in contact with uh, Orcus Online, and a fellow came over, and he climbed a tree, a fir tree, 100 feet from my what was my office and is now my, my sandal shop, my leather shop. He went up 100 feet in the tree, and I know it's 100 feet because the cord is uh, marked in foot segments. So it was 200 feet away. He put a... Uh, a parabolic um, radio antenna, two-way radio, pointed to Orcus. He said it was 16 kilometers. He could determine that it was 16 kilometers away, so it's quite close. And I had, um, I'm sure, the first long-range Wi-Fi here. And then later, other people also joined up with Orcus Online. So I was able to to sit there in my uh, with a beautiful view out to the valley and carry on my, my uh, business for another... Two years, and then cable came in, and I quit my job. <laughs> I quit your job. Don't need that anymore, except for fun. And yeah, it's a beautiful area, actually. The uh, Spalding Valley is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole island is filled with wonderful people who who leave you alone if you want to be left alone, or enjoying what you're doing if you if you're looking for company. I, I like my neighbors. Nice. Yeah, everything's fine there. That's great. And that's it's so nice to like your neighbors, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, well, leading into the second traditional question here, speaking of uh, neighbors and uh, the second question we always touch on is, uh, who's given you help on Pender Island along the way? Well, I had a great friend in um, Richard Philpot. He and I were, um, I was a volunteer and he was on the staff uh, administrator at the recycling Center for Pender Island Recycling Society. I'd been on a board, a recycling board in Northern California for 13 years before that. So it was easy transition. I'd been involved in, in, at UBC too in family housing in recycling. Uh, so I joined the, the board soon after I got here. I waited at the, the um, recommended year before I took on any um, involvement in any of the service organizations on the island. I got on the board of, of the uh, Recycling Society, and he and I worked together uh, very happily for years. And uh, another wonder is uh, Rob Zook. He's been a great and true friend, and he's done a lot of good things for, for people on the island. He's, he was the solar guy when I moved here, but it did take a few years before we met. Sorry, he was the solar guy. Well, that's how he's referred to as the solar guy. And I had just come off of my 25 years plus in the solar industry. I was a little weary of solar, to be honest with you. But So it took me a while to meet him. But he's just a wonderful, just a splendid fellow. Okay, so but he's heavily involved in uh, solar 
Uh, yeah, most of the solar or all the solar that you see on the island has been uh, the technical person for it. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rob Zook. I'm aware that he drives the bus. I That's caught a, true. Caught yeah, a ride with him on the yeah. bus one time. <laughs> he he knows how to drive the uh, the bus around the island. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was great. Okay, right on. Now, Richard and Rob, the people that have given you help along the way. A question that I asked earlier that uh, for some reason I want to follow again is uh, how how you met your wife, Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, maybe if you want to detail that story, if you feel like it. <laughs> but she likes to be present so she can correct me when I tell the story. But I can just <laughs> do an abbreviated story. In 1974, I had closed down the good earth in North Vancouver and moved back to Vancouver and got hooked up with um, some friends from North Vancouver and the mudflats, which you probably have heard nothing of. But if you go to leathersmith, with an E, dot com, you can read all about it in uh, history. There's uh, lots of archival information in there. The group that I was involved with put on the pleasure fairs. There were three major ones in uh, the Lower Mainland and uh, even in the PNE, the Pacific National Exhibition. That was where we we put on the last one, music and craft fairs. And they were put on by a group who called themselves Deluxe, Deluxe Carpenters. And that's when I got my, uh, my chops, my carpentry chops. I learned with these guys. And... They built the uh, Good Earth, the interior, which was uh, lots of ticky-tacky from the buildings that had been torn down along 7th Avenue and in early Vancouver uh, years when I was here to make a way for, well, the core the core of Vancouver was improved upon over those years. And uh, that's when uh, Gastown was renovated and brought back to life. And uh, Deluxe Carpenters played a big role in that. In that year, in 73, we were putting together w- one of the uh, the first big pleasure fair. At that time, I was living on 4th Avenue on the corner of 4th and Burrard and putting together the crafts people for this, uh, this pleasure fair, 74, 75. So I was living upstairs and downstairs was a natural food store, Lifestream. And Lifestream has since become an international um, natural foods seller. And downstairs was my wife. Upstairs was me interviewing people who wanted to have um, booths uh, or musicians for this show that we we're going to put on, Pacific National Exhibition. And that was referred to as a Christmas craft fair, 1975. And uh, once in a while, I'd go downstairs and get something to eat from the uh, live stream. And one of those visits downstairs, I uh, I saw Elizabeth across the room. And uh, I'm sure my I must have been glowing because she was. And uh, we met then. And then the rest is a long and complex story, which I'm not allowed to tell unless she's present <laughs> for some years. And then finally moved on to the land. So wait a second, you were glowing and she was glowing at the same time? Yeah, there was, was like a simultaneous it was glow love between at first sight. Yeah. Wow, really? <laughs> it was love at first sight. Yeah, I think so. So that's incredible, actually. I don't so, know if she would admit that though. <laughs> well, this is your perspective though, right? Which is amazing, but that's that's really lovely to hear, actually. Mm-hmm. So you, there was a uh, noticeable glow. It took a long time though to get together. 
And uh, Daniel was born in 1977, and we moved to the land in 1980. It took us a while to learn to live together. I think these things do take a while to learn how to live together. For those people that it comes naturally, my goodness, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how two people can figure that out very quickly. It's a bit of a process. Space, it's difficult to share with people sometimes. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, something that we i unclear on as well, too, is that where you were actually born, because you mentioned Alabama and draft records. And were you born in Alabama? No, I was born in Cuyahoga Hospital. And uh, that's in Cleveland, right on the lake that Randy Newman sings about. Oh. Roll on Cuyahoga or something like that. The fire on the... Cuyahoga? I don't know this one. <laughs> well, there was. <laughs> okay. Right. I think it was uh, leaked oil, oil spills. And finally, the the lake uh, caught on fire. Anyway, I was born in Cleveland. And my father came home from the Second World War in 1945. I guess I was two. And he traded. When did he trade? He brought home a, a Luger. German pistol, and a Leica, a German Leica camera. And he traded one of them for a Jeep, an army Jeep. And there was a glut of army Jeeps at the end of the Second World War. Okay. And the other one for a German Shepherd. So keeping in that German motif, we drove across country to Southern California and settled in Los Angeles. So I spent uh, my first from two years old to 10 years old in Los Angeles at a time of heavy smog. I, I couldn't catch my breath as a child playing outside. I was not able to get a deep breath. Wow, really? It was so bad. It's since been cleaned up. And then my parents divorced. My mother and I moved to Miami Beach when I was 10 in 1953, where her family had moved years earlier from Ohio. And my grandfather was in the hotel business. He was a hotelier and ran a couple of big major hotels, the Martinique and the Delano, still around. When I was 20, I, I was able to finally escape because I didn't like living in the, in the South. It was not a pleasant place to live. So Miami Beach, you'd call that the South? Yeah, it's about as far south as you can go. I guess so, but I not guess... the deep south. Yes, I understand the distinction, yeah. But Alabama was just a location for dra many uh, draftees. It was a centralized location. And so it included Florida and I'm sure places north of Alabama too. Okay. All right. But so Miami Beach in the 50s and 60s, and, and you said you didn't like it. So what what was it exactly about it that was uh, off-putting? It was a place that uh, mostly northerners gravitated toward, wealthy Northerners, New York, Ohio, and big cities, Chicago. And it always had the the feel, the glitter feel, similar to the Las Vegas feel. Didn't There wasn't much depth. I, I was a stranger in a strange land there. So I was glad to get away from there as well. Interesting. I, I did stick around, like I said, but uh, I was sticking around mostly to stay in college and to, to keep from being drafted. But I did leave when I could and, and went to the West Coast. Everything felt different on the West Coast, big cultural differences. Okay. You didn't really have a lot of soul, maybe. Yeah, you can say that. It was very superficial. Okay. It felt like that. All right. And Where it's probably all the wealth. A big. There were the servers, the, the 
the uh, Liberty City blacks that would come over and uh, work for the uh, the, the wealthy um, Miami Beach people and the hotels. And Jim Crow was very much alive, and the buses said uh, colored seat from the rear, and there were there were water fountains for blacks and the water fountains for whites, and seating was separate in uh, Greyhound buses and in the terminals. And that always felt wrong to me. I had a good early sense of justice. So that, I think that was a big part of it, too, the, the great divide between the, the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor people. And my, uh, my mother remarried a teacher, so my family was poor, and I had to go to school with very wealthy kids, and I, I didn't, didn't fit in at all. I was wearing uh, Levi 501s and, and uh, chambray work shirts, and all the other kids were dressed in custom clothes and very expensive pre-designer era clothes, and drove cars and had boats. And so I grew up poor, but I mean, I had everything I needed. And I always worked as a kid. I always had a job, a busboy or delivering newspapers, that kind of thing. What was your uh, your first job? I was working for 60 cents an hour as a busboy in a market. A market? Yeah. So what, what kind of market? Uh... Uh, food fair. It was a grocery store. The, um, the ancestor of a supermarket. Smaller <laughs> scale, but... That kind of <laughs> the ancestor of a supermarket, yeah. and twenty five cents was a big tip to get in those days. Here, kids, <laughs> have a quarter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, sure. That's really fascinating, Davey. I have so enjoyed listening to these stories, and it's it's actually blown me away. It seems like as we spiral out from one story to another, that there's so much history that you have, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing these stories. And it seems like that there's so much more you could possibly talk about, but. We're nearing the end of our time here, but before we near the end of our time or before we get to the end of our time, I just wanted to throw out just an open question to you of if there's anything else you want to uh, end off on, any stories that you want to share and uh, that you haven't touched on today, the floor is yours. Now, to tell you the truth, I'm tired of telling my stories. <laughs> well, I don't know why, but I've been asked recently to, to tell it a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I'm tired of it. <laughs> I think it's like traveling, you know, I feel like I did it enough. So... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing, I'm working on archives, photographic archives, always am. And my website is a, I admit it, it's a vanity site. In addition to showing the things I make, I do give a history. Part of that is because it's timely to get some things down. I have kids and I have grandchildren and I'd like them to have access to some of these things that they might not have heard about that I never heard about from my my family. I never sat on the steps and listened to my father or my grandfather tell stories. I don't know why, but it just didn't happen. My wife, too, she's working on her autobiography, and the other kids in her family, her siblings are working on it, too. So I, I do have it on my... I've got all these things on my mind all the time because I'm trying to get them in uh, chronological order before I forget them completely. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. That's, that's a really... Fantastic that your wife and yourself are doing that because really it's such an important thing that we have. It's our stories. And a friend told this to me a couple months ago and it almost knocked me over. And he said, I, I think it's the most important thing that uh, we possess is our stories. Hmm. 
<laughs> and it, it certainly resonated in that moment with me. And were yeah. you doing the right thing? Yeah, it feels like I'm doing the right thing. I'm thoroughly enjoying this project. So well, I'm looking forward to listening to some other other people's stories. <laughs> put, that, <laughs> put them on the hot seat. Okay. Well, the, absolutely, they're coming. All right. Well, uh, thank you again for coming in, Davey. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, I totally enjoyed doing that interview. And in honor of that interview, I decided I'd come down and walk along Spalding Road. So Spalding Road is located on the uh, South Island. And it is uh, a straight, flat road on the island. But it's uh, straight and flat as things get on Pender. And it's just under two kilometers long. And on my right-hand side is the Spalding Valley a little bit of a hillside on the other side of the valley. And on the other side of the hill is Greenburn. And it is a beautiful, beautiful place. Just walking underneath a maple tree right now. And <laughs> unbelievably, as I was getting ready to record this, I ran into Davey going for a walk along here. And how awesome was that? It was awesome. <laughs> really loved doing that interview. And thank you very much for listening. And sincerely, thank you very much for spending time listening to these interviews. I really appreciate it. That is all. Until next time.